The problem is, when you put them into the story and try to play them off as being true, the audience will turn on you because they thought you were telling a true story. And then when they don't believe you, it feels like you've wasted their time. So you've got to really be careful with where do you fudge the truth? Yo, 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 it's your girl and boy CT. I'm Cindy Barnes. And I'm Travis Barnes. And we are the founders of the Overcomers Podcast. The Overcomers Podcast is designed to help you overcome adversity and live your dreams. Every week, we will be sharing stories of people who found their strength in their struggle. The Overcomers Podcast is sponsored by Journey 333. And that's a lot of threes, so let me tell you what it is. It's fitness, coaching, and nutrition. It is a place where we help you to look better, live better, and feel better, and it is mind, body, spirit. Today, we're going to help you get your mind right with our special guest. Hello, Overcomer Nation. I picked up this book. It's been a couple months now, and the name of the book is Long Story Short. And immediately through the book, I could just feel the author's humor. I could just gain a tremendous amount of respect for the knowledge that was being shared, and I knew that I had a real gem. So I reached out to the author of long story short. And I asked her, I said, will you be on our podcast? And today I have Margot Lightman in the house. Welcome to the Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And thanks for reaching out. Oh my goodness. It was just like, I'm going to take a chance because this book, it was so valuable. Oh, good. Here's the, here's the idea is that so many people want to share their stories, but they just don't know how. Uh, that you know, you want to be able to stand comfortably in front of a crowd. It could just be your family members. It could be because you're a business owner. You want to talk to the chamber of commerce, or whatever the case might be. But you gave a a systematic, analytical approach and a fun approach to telling stories, and just so many gems throughout that book. Um, why don't we just start with you know your history a little bit? Um, how did you get into storytelling? I know it's in the book, but I'll let you tell it. That's okay. Um, I started with stand-up comedy when I first got out of college. I was a theater person in college. And then I was I tended to err towards the comedic side of things always. So I was doing stand-up for about six years in New York City. And I really started to fall out of love with it very rapidly. But so, But I had all of these shows booked that I was supposed to perform in. So I started just telling a tr one true story as the full set instead of setup and punchline. And that, and I would sneak that in into these stand-up shows instead. And then here and there, these storytelling shows started popping up that was geared just for that. And I loved it so much that I started my own with my friend Julia Razi. And we ran this storytelling show in New York for a really long time. I can't remember exactly how long, but it was something like, seven or so years. And um, from there, it just, you know, came teaching and everything else. But yeah, it started from me trying to figure out how to be more authentic while telling, while being funny, I think was a big thing. Okay. And when it comes to presenting, rather be, like I said earlier, rather be to a small group or rather be on a major stage, how important is storytelling to presenting? I think it's vital to presenting. Uh, I think people tap into story a lot more than they tap into facts. And if you can surround a fact with a story as you're presenting something, then people will latch on and remember the story of a person um, that then therefore can exemplify the fact you're trying to get in or the number or the statistic or the importance of something. 
But when we just berate people with facts, numbers, statistics, at times we don't retain them as well. So I think that that, it, that therefore in presenting, it becomes one of the most vital things you can possibly do is learn how to tell the story of what you are trying to get across. Yeah, really good. Because if they if they don't get emotionally attached to that information you're presenting, you know, how can they possibly retain it, right? And and that's where the story comes in. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Really good. In your book, speaking of presenting, in your book, you talked about visual aids and storytelling, uh, that they're a bit like nude scenes in a movie. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? What I meant was you can use, they're great if it enhances what you're talking about, but too much can be overkill. And actually, uh, I have a new uh, position where I teach people pitching and selling at a university right now. And I, I, I've come around a bit on the slide deck. I do think that you should have one in certain aspects of business presentations. But the reliance on it, where people are just reading facts off of a slide instead of telling the story of what they're trying to get apart can be really problematic. And so there'll be times that a person will just use these trinkets to get something across instead of actually trying to connect with the audience. And at that point, um, you can lose them. I just One of the best examples is if you watch the iPhone launch of 2007 with Steve Jobs, the, the visuals he uses in that are so sparse throughout it. They're so easy to understand. They're so basic. And yet he really relies on telling the story of, of, of it. And it's so effective because when he uses a slide, it really hits something home. But what we're, our eyes are on are on Jobs, that whole talk, and the way that he's carrying it. So I would say that's one of the prime examples of, I think, visual aids done well, whereas in other problematic, I'm sure you've seen it too, if you are a presenter, that there's just these slides with so much dense information on it. I don't even know why the person's there. I could just look at the slideshow at home on my computer and be done with it. It's definitely one of the things I've had to learn over the years is not yeah. text. And, and then, of course, not to just throw all the text up there when I'm trying to talk because now I'm competing with my own slide because people are just going to be reading. Uh, that that's super important. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, you don't want to be competing with your own slides. You want to be their cheerleader. Yeah, it's a really good point. So let me ask you this: um, you you mentioned Steve Jobs, and I think you did a brilliant job in the book of uh, just pointing out how he had a, I think you called it a back pocket story. Yeah, uh, I think you you suggested that, that that's something that every presenter should have. Uh, and could you tell a little bit about that, you know, since we're on yeah. top of jobs? Yeah. So in the iPhone launch, he has a technical malfunction. I mean, could you imagine launching one of the greatest tech innovations of all time and during and your slide presentation fails? And that's what happened. Uh, and if you watch it, it happens towards the end of the speech. And instead of just standing there in silence or storming off the stage, leaving everyone there, what he does is he fills the time by telling a funny story from his youth. And then by the time he's done with that, it's all fixed and then he moves on. But he he, he almost wins people over more in that moment because he becomes so human and they, you see this other side of him. But that he had that story, you know, just this cute little story ready to go. And I there's and that to me shows a great example of there's never a downside to having some good go to stories that you can tell in any situation. So. Yeah, it's really worth a watch. It comes towards the end of the speech, and I use it a lot when I teach about presenting because it really shows. It's I mean, this is a pro at work. Yeah, yeah. So to be a true professional, always be prepared for those moments where you know something could go wrong, and 
And how will you handle it while people are up there adjusting the wires and, you know, trying to fix your slide deck or whatever the case might be? I mean, the more reliant you are on tech, the more likely something's going to go wrong. Also, <laughs> I mean, there's that. I was performing in India at this amazing festival in, in 2017, I think it was. And I had a cue that I was going to try and use in this. I mean, I was performing for like 2,500 people, a huge festival. And I had a tech cue in my story, which I almost never do. And they, they were, and I, and I think at the last minute, something was not working with it. And I had to just adjust and not use it. But I was like, you should have known not to rely on, you know, choose a story that's so reliant on that in a situation like this, because things can go wrong. And then what, what do you do? It happens all the time, all the time. So speaking of situations, you know, you know, I had these questions prepared, but as we go through this talk today, you know, you reminded me of other parts of the book that I'd like to bring out as well. You talked about in your book how one story bombed and then that same story told in front of a different audience was just such a big hit. I I think you won a competition with it. Um, Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a it's a never giving up type of overcomer theme, really, you know, when I think about it. But uh, if you will. You know what's so funny that you're mentioning that story is that I literally just told that story in a show last week for the first time in about 10 years. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so funny that you're talking about that. Um, yeah, I told it and it was in a variety show. So people were doing things like characters or music or whatever. And then I came up and told this story. I mean, it it truly started in a way that that's, I got off stage and someone said to me, it went so badly that someone actually gave me a pep talk about not giving up or, or leaving or quitting. But when I sat down, he was like, you know what? You got a lot of talent. Don't let them, like as if I went so poorly that someone was like, I think she's never. Because <laughs> um, We've done, you know, oh God, it wasn't that bad that I'm getting this pep talk now, right? I mean, I got a big pep talk. The worst thing I think, not to get too sidetracked, that a person can say to you when you get off stage, I think is, oh, you got a lot of guts. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> because that always means that a person knows you did badly, but they want, they're like, oh, you got a lot of guts to get on stage. Good for you. And that's all they say. That usually means it didn't go well either. I've had many things not go well. But oh. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so it didn't go well. And then... What happened was I was doing a storytelling competition a few nights later, and the theme of it was food at the mall, good food it was called. And I had a story prepared that I was going to tell about uh, getting the Heimlich maneuver in a restaurant and this whole very crazy situation that happened with that. And one or two people before me, someone told a story about getting a Heimlich uh, maneuver in a restaurant. And I thought, I can't tell this story now. It's so similar to this because the theme was food. So, I mean, there's overlapping ideas, obviously. So the only other story I had about food that was the story that had bombed in the show a few weeks before, but it had to do with food. So I was like, I guess I'll just tell that terrible story. (laughs) And so I did. And then I won the storytelling competition that night. And then that story got played on NPR. And I literally just recorded it uh, for another podcast a week or two ago that I just signed the release for it to be on another podcast. I just brought it back out of kind of retirement <laughs> because it was fitting the themes of some other stories. So it's interesting. We throw things away. It's like if you get an opinion of only one person on something you wrote, I mean, obviously there's always one person that's going to hate what you do, but you have to keep, you know, showing it and getting feedback and 
you know, I mean, I don't know. We always think about the one time that it's failed, but we always kind of dismiss all of the good times that that the times that it's gone well, you know. So that's a very human thing to do. So I was kind of forced to not give it up, which was good. Yeah, and and I think there's uh, so many important lessons in that, you know, like uh, right now, for some reason, the image of a talented songwriter that's just, you know, created a lot of uh, awesome, you know, hit songs, throwing away their music, right? Like, don't throw away your music, right? You know, it's up. Is it? I watched a movie about that. Um, I forget what it was called about this National Lampoon writer that wrote a whole screenplay. And then he showed it to one person and the person didn't like it. And he literally took it through it in the trash bin and moved on. Um, I forget the name of the movie, but I remember watching that and being like, wow, that was probably a genius piece of work that just needed some feedback. Yeah. So what you're saying about the songwriter is really relevant. I mean, it applies to a lot of different art forms. Yeah. I think at one time Stephen King was living in a trailer and somebody had to dig out a script out of the trash that he had wrote, you know, like you can look that up. But point is, would you say that maybe there's a lesson there about you could have the right story, just the wrong audience, or, or what would you like people to learn from that? Because it's really awesome that, you know, we're bombed one night. I mean, it, you know, went everywhere, NPR, uh, another time. Yeah, I do think you have to know your audience. Um, there's times where I do shows where I know I'm going to be performing for people that are really in a headspace that they want to hear something funny or people that are more, it's a more serious crowd where you need, you have the freedom to do something more heartfelt. I mean, there are storytelling shows, oral storytelling shows that are in a comedy venue. So I will err towards comedic in that space. If I, I mean, I literally performed a story at an office, like, dinner party the other night. And I'm not going to tell my, like, raunchiest story in front of this, you know, group of coworkers. You know, I mean, you just kind of, you have to know. I mean, a lot, the great thing about storytelling is, in, in at least in where I live in Los Angeles, a lot of the live shows have a theme you know, so you can tailor it to that. Um, but yeah, you do have to know who is there, uh, age-wise, et cetera. You know, what story would really speak to this audience? And I have no audience is going to be filled with the exact same type of person, you know. But you do have to be respectful of that. But at the end of the day, I try to remember that if it doesn't go well, this at, at its core is is my art and I shouldn't throw it away for, you know, because of the opinion of one or so audiences that I've had, you know, so. So there's a lesson in kind of making sure that it's going to match up well with your audience, but yet don't give up on your story if it's something that you're passionate about and part of your art just because of uh, one opinion. So that's, that's another great lesson as well. I mean, I revise a lot. I work on, you know, I revamp things constantly and try to work on them and make them better. So there's that. I mean, all writing is rewriting. All acting is reacting, you know, so... We have to keep, you know, working. You know, if it doesn't work, you don't have to keep doing it the same way, but you can work on it to make it better for the next time. Very good. I mean, I think it's similar to fitness, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's a work in progress. I wish that we got to hit the hold button when we achieved what we wanted. That would be great. You know, but it's always a, a bit of reworking and a rewriting. And um, let me ask you this. When it comes to telling stories, people sometimes feel like, well, why would anyone care about my life? And, and in yeah. your... Uh, you you mentioned a little bit about I think you say maybe trick them into caring. Uh, what what do you mean uh, as far as people are are feeling very insecure? Uh, why would somebody care about my life? And what would you say to that? Because your life 
I mean, you have to understand that your life, no, you're not the most special person in the world and all of these things. But what you are, what you can be is relatable to an audience and have an audience tap into you and see themselves through your story. And if they find you relatable, they'll they'll listen to whatever you have to say. And I think that's the main thing is that it, it trick the audience into believing the stories about them, then they will love everything you say. I actually don't think that the greatest storytellers need to have the most wild and crazy life. I do think that they need to have broader themes that we can relate to. And a great example of this is Mike Probiglia as a wonderful storyteller who is in many ways a regular guy. He doesn't have this extraordinarily unusual upbringing or life story or where he comes from or anything like that, but he's able to talk about his life in a really compelling manner that people can see themselves in it. So I always feel like it's a greater challenge to be able to tell a story well if you have had a more normal life. And it's actually a sign of a really strong storyteller. So I, I don't think that as long as you keep yourself at the center of the story and that you are the telling your own stories of your own experiences, I think you're fine. It's when you start being insecure about your own stories and you start wanting to tell the stories of other people. I think that that can be a little not so successful if you do something like that. Yeah. So people have to be able to see themselves in your story. Uh, and then when it comes to um, the themes that you just mentioned, you mentioned themes as a word. Uh, you suggested that there are storylines that have universal themes. And I was, <laughs> I found it funny. One of the examples you gave in your book was Breaking Bad. And I'm like, well, how is this a, a theme that people are going to see themselves in? Because, you know, this is a widely popular show, but I mean, it's about meth cooking, right? Like, I mean, you know, I would I would hope that's a small segment of the population, right? You know, like, you know, that yes. big, right? So talk to us about universal themes and stories that make people want to relate. Well, there's always a universal theme in a bigger story, which is why we watched it. Uh, the example of Breaking Bad is, yes, I would imagine most of us were not, most of us are not meth cooks, but- there were so many bigger themes in there, like never feeling like you were getting acknowledged for all you do, feeling like you needed to be in a better place in the world than where you're at, watching other people rise up ahead of you that started with you. Like all of those are themes. I'm a theater person. I went to theater school. You know, I mean, there's tons of people that rise and fall and rise and fall when you graduate from that. This person got this part and I should have gotten that. And all of those emotions, I could tap into not getting a part in a play into watching that. So when you look at that, then you can see yourself in these main characters. Maybe you see yourself in Walter White, or maybe you see yourself in Jesse or in Skylar, the wife. You can see yourself in all of these people. So these broader themes are there, and people create shows based around them. You know, if you look, if you watch interviews with David Chase about The Sopranos, did you watch The Sopranos? Yeah, yeah. Have Italian. I mean and you know go watch the sopranos of course i mean it's timeless and people are still watching that show but at its core what david chase said was it's about a mobster in therapy that's what he said that that show was about at its core right so then if you look at have i ever had some struggles with my mental well-being have i ever felt like overwhelmed in the world all of those things right those bigger things that are built into the pilot of that are really relatable he's having trouble juggling his home life in his work life. <laughs> I felt that, right? I felt that. I I even have been to therapy, you know, so it's like because for that exact reason of having to how do I juggle these two worlds? So I'm not a mobster. I am from New Jersey. 
<laughs> so there were a lot of things. But uh, yeah, so, and my DNA test said I was 10% Italian. So maybe there was a little bit more. <laughs> Just kidding. You're identifying. There's jerky. <laughs> well, and that takes us to points of entry, right? I, yeah. That legend in your book. And, and you suggested that uh, good storytelling is giving multiple points of entry. And I'm not sure if I, I'm getting this right. You know, this is, uh, you're, you're the expert. Is that an example of a point of entry that he gave to you? Because he's saying, you know, here I am in Jersey or whatever. Uh, so a point of entry is the specific point that you see yourself in the story. So there's something in the story that happens that you go, oh, that's me. So yeah, you see him. I mean, even in the credits of that show, he's leaving New York City and going back to Jersey in the car um, in that. So that's a drive I took constantly with my family as a kid. So immediately I'm in really at the credit sequence because I see myself sitting in that car. Um, whereas the broader theme, the universal theme would be struggle, work-life balance. That's a broader theme of that. Um, and there's many, many broader universal themes in that show. But something like a point of entry would be where I see myself in it. Yes, I've done that drive from New York to New Jersey. Yes, I grew up in New Jersey. That's my, I see myself in there. Um, when they were talking, when they started, um, I, half of my family is Jewish. When they started bringing in the Jewish mobsters from New York, not the brand of mob, but culturally, I, I saw, you know, like things from my family and that. So um, although I have to say at my job here uh, at where when I teach the college courses, <laughs> my students, when they find out I'm from New Jersey, are always asking me things about the Sopranos. I guess it's really big with college kids or at least the kids at this college. <laughs> They're always asking me like as if I'm because I'm from New Jersey, I understand what happens in the mob. They'll be like, so do you guys do? And I'm like. I'm just from New Jersey. I'm not in the Sopranos. I don't know how it all works. Anyway, the, the side thing, but it makes That's me so funny that you could get that association from them. That's so crazy. They are. They are. I mean, yeah, we're in California. We're on the other side of the country, so they're so intrigued by New Jersey. It's so oh, funny. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, so uh, another question that I have for you that has to do with your book is that you say now, if somebody wants to be a good storyteller. They don't want to wing it. They want to write out their story word for word. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Uh, but like you say, this is a must. Well, yeah, but you don't memorize it. You just have it written down. And then from there, you can just make bullet points from that. So then what I do from that is then from, from that full written version, I then make bullet points, which is what I use to speak with. I don't think you should memorize your script word for word. I actually highly advise against that. But you should write it out to get it out of your head and have all the details there. That way, if you, what if you want to tell it again? You're never going to be able to capture that magic if it's just something you riffed. So you have something that you can reference over and over again. Um, and that can help you, yeah, just be able to repeat work and on all of that. When you're presenting, um, I, I think it's very different if you're presenting at, at a conference or something and you just need to make major points and you have slides and such, it's different than telling a full oral story. But no, I don't want anyone to memorize it word for word. I want them to memorize the various moments that you need to hit in the story. That way, if anything gets lost along the way, you can uh, recover from that really quickly. Okay. And would that be what you're really encouraging them to memorize would be more like a beat sheet, right? Would that be? Yes, that's what I call it. Yeah. Beat sheet. Probably have it all. Honestly, this is how old school I am. This is a full draft of a story. Okay. And then from there, I go and I 
just make like quick points in a notebook. And then that's what I go from when I tell the story. So this is actually two versions of the same story. But I know it by the back. I, that's a waste of retaining it. To me, I'm a very, I think it's called a kinetic or kinesthetic learner. I re remember things if I write them by hand. Other right. people, if you listen to yourself recording it over and over again, it's great. Some people, I know someone that just does like flashcards and she's very visual in that way. But however you can do it, but just have some sort of moment that you, something that you can go back to over and over again. So then uh, the story written out is obviously the story written out, but the beat sheet is like taking like, what are my key points in this story? Yeah. And, you know, bullet them out then. Yeah. And that's usually just like a page of beats. Do you have any tricks for somebody remembering what's on their beat sheet? Do you like do any sort of like acronyms or like, I, I don't know. Is no, I mean, I just think of it in a different mindset, which is what happens next, not what's my line, what it's the memorization. It's just what happened next in the story. And that's why I'm pretty good on, you know, you should keep it true because it's your life and you'll remember what happened next. Sure. Okay. Very good. So, so if it's a, your story and it's chronological, your key points follow a timeline then is what we're saying, you know, right? If it's chronological. I mean, if you're doing an oral version of Memento, good luck. Uh, I have no, no no idea of how you're going to do it, but I've seen people do really well with that. You know, flashback and flash forward. That's not really my thing, but I've had students do great jobs with that. You should ask them. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Out of my scope of practice. We'll get them on here next. <laughs> so uh, what are some of the most important elements uh, of a good story? Uh, if you, you know, like when you're putting it together, like for example, you just mentioned something that, took me back to a spot in the book where uh you're like you know it has to be true right you know we're not making up stuff you're like eh, you know like that was a rule that you gave for the you know yes yeah. um what are what are some of the rules that you you give to people just so then you know kind of some guidelines if you will well when i say it has to be true people feel really confined by that but the places i don't i don't think that you would want anyone telling a a story that involves maybe something crazy night you had in high school that is a complete lie. I, I don't think anyone would want that, right? But where you can be messed with the truth is you can have a fantasy in your head or uh, inner monologue of what you think is going to happen or inner, you know, a dream scenario or I envision the future is going to be like this. There's so many different tropes that you can use to get those exaggerated big, the big time over the top storytelling techniques that you want to put in there there. The problem is when you put them into the story and try to play them off as being true, you, the audience will turn on you because they thought you were telling a true story. And then when they don't believe you, it feels like you've wasted their time. So you've got to really be careful with where do you fudge the truth? Things like um, I was 13 and then maybe a, a year later you find some journal and you realize you were 14. It, it's fine. You know, things like that. You were approximately 13. So give it a break, you know. We waited in line for 20 minutes. Just estimate, you know, if you are in a, in a, in a time period, let's say you're in the a, telling a story in the 80s and you walk into a school dance, you could tell me what song might have been playing. You know, I mean, you, obviously you're not going to remember what song was playing, but I walk in and don't you forget about me is blasting on the radio. That shows me the time and the scenario, you know. So things that, you know, you, but the actual core and emotional truth of the story and what happens in the events, I would keep that as as true as you can to your best of your memory. I mean, I we're all human here. Yeah. Yeah. You, 
you mentioned that there's ways to, to prune a story and, and make it an even better story. Uh, a couple of those methods are, uh, you know, shortening up the characters or, you know, not spreading things out so much over time. You know, maybe you could speak to that just a little bit, because I know yeah. I certainly don't say it as well as you do in the book. And I want people to understand what you're. you're sure. So condensing a timeline uh, is an easy way to make a long story short. So what I mean by that is, for example, I tell a story about sleepaway camp and I did go to sleepaway camp for two different summers for three weeks each summer. But it's two summers, all the same people are there. So what I've done is condense the timeline into one summer because that otherwise I have to stop the story and say, and then I went home, then I went back to school, then I packed my bags, then I drove up there, then I went back this summer. And it's no point. It's all, con it's a condensed timeline for the sake of clarity and, you know, keeping the story short and concise. So there's that. Um, another way is something called a composite character which is if you take, and this is used all the time in film and television, where you take a bunch of people together that represent one thing, and they are what's called a composite character. So, for example, I'm in the show uh, Dope Sick. Did you see that show with Michael Keaton about the opioid crisis? That's a TV show that used the the technique of the of composite character. There was a lot of facts in that story about the opioid crisis in America, but there was... Um, and it was based on a factual book, but there was what a young girl that represented a bunch of different people from that demographic that we could really get to know that one young girl in the opioid crisis and why how she got there. And she was represented a, a, a whole population of people in the show. And then there was, you know, this type of pharmaceutical representative that represented a bunch of them. So that's what we do is like if you can get one person, one character that can we can really get to know them. We don't need 25 pharmaceutical representatives. We can really get to know the one and really feel that. So, OK, uh, speaking of characters, you mentioned in your book uh, the idea of considering giving your characters nicknames. You know, well, what's the, the methodology behind that or, you know, the, the reason? Well, I mean, I'm all about if you. You want to be considerate of others and protecting names and identifying characteristics. Go for it. I mean, I have had people say, please use my real name. <laughs> I love being a part of it. There's some people in your life that that want to be a part of it, and that's fine. But if you want to give a person a nickname, you can also have fun with that. Um, you could, I mean, yes, you can change it from Chuck to Charles or whatever if that's going to disguise an identity. Or you could call them something, you know, funnier than that, like... Um, I try not to be offensive. <laughs> My names always are a little not too great, but you know, you could you could call them like uh, ugly sweater guy or something like that. You can call them that for the whole story, and then that adds a level of humor on top of that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Speaking of humor, should should all presenters use humor? Is there a system for using humor? Is there a litmus test? Because let's face it, some people are just funny, and some people. Some people are just funny and some people are not. Yeah. I admit I was at a baptism the other day and uh, I hope I'm using the right word. I'm not a Catholic descent. The pastor, is that what it is at a baptism? Uh, or Catholic. Uh, so that'd okay. be like father, or, uh, right? A priest right there. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Okay. But the religious figure I, okay. I, uh, um, was was uh, very funny and humorous. You know, he started the first thing he said was, I was baptized here in 1959 and then he goes so now everybody knows how old i am and then he started with a joke and he was just very charming and i was like 
as a person that's not used to going to religious ceremonies, I welcomed his little humor throughout the whole thing. And I thought he was really charming. Um, and I still took him seriously and figured that he knew how to do a baptism and he was, you know, the, the baby was in good hands. Um, so I do think if you were naturally funny, and I tell my students this all the time, then don't hide that to be this really serious person that you're not. I I also I think people are a lot of worry very worried that if they're funny, then they won't be taken seriously. And you don't need to be a stand-up comedian to be, have humor in what you do. I think there's some people that have used it really well. Barack Obama was really funny in his speeches. I've seen so many funny clips of him, and he was someone that used his humor to his advantage and was still president of, of the United States, and it still worked out. So if you are a person that is naturally funny, naturally inclined that way, go for it. If you are, I I do strongly believe that I don't think I can teach a person how to be funny. Um, I think you kind of have that in you or not, but I can teach you how to tell a story effectively and we can insert some humor into that to make people laugh along the way, but I can't change your entire personality. Yeah. <laughs> and there's value to the unfunny uh, as well. Yeah. I really liked it in your book where you were talking about, uh, I don't know what your it, your way of saying it was, but I'm like, okay, so it's kind of like acknowledging the elephant that's in the room. Uh, I think it was uh, talking about a time where your foot was in a cast or, or something like that. Oh, yeah, it's and, you know, so I'm up here, you know, kind of like the 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 priest, the father, the religious figure, whoever was about to, uh, yeah. you know, give this baptism, you know, so started here in 1959. And so he, he mentions how old he is and then he moves on. Uh, you know, you mentioned this story of like, okay, so I'm up here with a cast. I guess I better talk about it so people are distracted by it the whole time. I suppose I could have done that today with my cold, right? It could have been like, hey, guys, I'm not trying a new voice today. I'm just like, you know. Like, right. right. Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah, because they go, please welcome Margot Lightman. I'm hobbling out on my crutches and, you know, which is not my, there are people that use crutches every day, but I am not one of those people. So obviously there was something going on. And so let's. Let's acknowledge it and then move on because I think they're going to be whispering, what happened to her leg? Last time I saw her, she didn't have crutches. You know, so I mean, yeah, there's no problem in acknowledging it because no one's going to really care. Just move on. Good. That's good. So how many children do you have? Two. Okay. I'm going to frame this question this way. Your children, or maybe just one of them, comes to you and says, you know, mom, you know, what do I have to do to be a great storyteller? You know, I wanted you to kind of picture this piece of advice going to somebody that you're really, really important in your life. And it's like, you know, they want to be a great storyteller, just like mom. You know, is there like a, a top few things that you'd tell them to do? You know, three things, five things, maybe just one thing, you know, what would you what would you say? For a child? Are they a child or are they an adult version of themselves telling me this? I guess they're an adult version since our audience is... uh uh, all in, you know, mostly adults. I don't know. I'm sure I got some teenagers out there, but uh, yeah. I would say think of the most embarrassing moment from your life and let's work on how you could tell that in a funny way and get everyone to laugh along with you at it as long as you are over it and now believe that it's funny. I believe that the easiest go-to would be Think of something that at the time wasn't so funny and now really is. Uh, put yourself at the center of the story. Make yourself the star. Make sure we root for you. Keep it short and make sure it has a clear ending. And that's probably the most beginner way I would explain that to someone. 
Wow, that was really good. That was concise. Uh, that that's that's good. Let let's just uh, highlight that for a second. So you're gonna think of a time in your life that you know maybe wasn't so funny at the time that it was happening, but you're over it now, and so you can you can tell it with a little bit of humor looking back, and you're gonna make yourself the the star of the story, uh, and you're going to make sure that people root for you, so you have a little bit of that underdog theme. Um, and you're going to make it clear. Uh, make it a distinct ending that we know it's over. Oh, yeah, right. In the ending, do not spell out what you've learned or moral. Oh, okay. And why wouldn't we do that? Everyone does that when they first tell a story. I don't know why. Uh, all beginner, not, I don't want to say so many of my beginners, that's the natural inclination. I don't know why. Maybe because that's how fairy tales were when we were a kid. I don't know. But we're adults listening to stories. No, In no other form is anyone spelling out what I should learn in terms of when I watch a movie, it, if. no one at the end of it is like, see, if you stick with it, kid, you, you too could become a rock star. Like they don't say that at the end of a movie if I watch about a rock star becoming a rock star. I don't, they don't show it at the end of a TV show. So I don't know why you want to spell it out. Instead, you want to just let it speak for itself. Um. Sometimes I think that people's inclination to do that is stems from corporate presentations where you have to really hit home your point and your takeaway. And I think if someone comes from that world, that's probably where it comes from. But other than that, I'm not sure why everyone has that instinct. So we should allow people the space to have their own conclusion, their own interpretation. Yeah, that's what's interesting to talk about. After You ever see a movie with someone and then talk about oh i thought it was about this i thought it was about that that's so fun right right right. yeah very good and i guess you're right you know when it comes to like the old school presenting it's like okay we're gonna tell them what we're gonna tell them and then we're gonna tell them then we're gonna tell them what we told them right so i guess a lot of times a presentation requires a summary of points that you wanted to get across right so maybe yeah that's true comes from you know okay um how about this I like to ask this question because uh, you being the expert and if you were interviewing yourself, uh, I'm sure that you would ask even better questions. So <laughs> is there anything I could have asked you that, uh, that I haven't asked you yet when it comes to storytelling? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think a good question is probably a lot of your listeners don't have an opportunity to tell a story in a live show in their area. So how might one have an opportunity if they liked this this method and this was something that interested them, how could they do that in their community? And I would say, do what, what when I first started this, there was maybe one or two shows in New York City, and I know I was living in a big city, but that had opportunities to tell a story, but then there was nothing else. So what I did was start my own, and that's how it grew, and I built a community, and I've seen and I would advise that if you don't have a place to do this, that there if there isn't, then you should be the one starting a storytelling night. Uh, and you would be shocked at how many people will want to come and share that. Uh, in in these, I mean, I have been all over the place and these amazing storytelling communities that are there, it's just so moving to see these communities. And I some of my closest friends are from that, from from the storytelling world. So that would be the big thing is that if you don't have a place to do this, um, start one. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is your book is the only one that, that I know of of its kind uh, 
I became interested in your book because I realized, well, you know, if you're going to be a good presenter, you know, you need to be able to tell a good story. You know, it's just, it seems like, you know, like you said earlier, you know, it's just so vital. Yet there's not a lot of books or courses out there on how to be a great storyteller. You know, there's a lot of, not a lot of people serving the way that you serve. But what I didn't realize until I read the book is what a community of storytellers there are, you know, like there's, yeah. uh, I mean, you talked about the, is it called the moth? Uh, yes. And that's a place that you may have in your town that you didn't even realize or close to you. So go to the moth.org because there's local branches of it all over the country and even outside of the country that have these storytelling nights. So you'd be, is there one near you? Uh, I don't think so. Not. Well, I mean, not too far away. Uh, Philadelphia, I believe, has one. So, you know, it's, it's within our state. Philadelphia. How far is Philly from you? Philadelphia has a huge storytelling scene. Yeah, so that would be a couple hours. But, I mean, still, you know, like a trip that we've taken, you know, uh, for uh, several times, you know. So, yeah. Okay. Very good. And, you know, why not start one? You know, there's somebody actually right here in town, uh, the town that I live in, that's starting a uh, a bit of a speakeasy comedy club. So uh, a great theme with that would be a storyteller night. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, any place that there is any town that has any sort of a th live venue, even, I mean, I have done things in coffee shops or I, I have done storytelling shows in the street. Not that I've produced them all, but been in, you know, had people put them up in the strangest of spaces you wouldn't even believe bars, et cetera. You know, the places can do stuff like this. My husband, he does stand-up comedy, but he just started a stand-up comedy show in a, in a local bar in our neighborhood, and it's going really well. I mean, you just have to find a venue. It doesn't need to be the perfect venue, but if it has space that can have a little bit of a quiet section, you can do it. Wow. You two must be a fun couple to have dinner with. <laughs> I think so. I think yeah, it would be fun. It's it's a stand-up comedy. Wow, that's yeah. great. So how about this? Any any final tips for our uh, storytellers? That uh... I would say less is more. We get it faster than you think. Speed it up. <laughs> less is more. Speed it up. That's good. How do people get more from you? Uh, you know, whether they follow you or learn from you. You know, what's the what's anywhere? Uh, everything's under my name, MargoLightman.com, my website or on Instagram, are are probably the two best places to find me. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes and uh, you know, give people a place to visit. My Instagram is filled a lot with the new puppy I just adopted. Less storytelling, but we will we will go back to being about storytelling soon. Once I, once the thrill of the new puppy is is it's, it's not as main front and center in my life. But that's mostly what you're going to get right now on my Instagram. <laughs> oh, that's a story in itself. Congratulations on your new puppy. That's okay. awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, just a book that you wrote and, and you know, serving the world with this. And I can't wait to get the companion guide to the storytelling. So that's awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, that's called uh, What's Your Story? And it's a workbook. So you can use that to continue starting to put your stories out there and composing them. And yeah. I have a friend who gave me this uh, shirt. It's called uh, Live a Life Worth Telling a Story About. about oh, fun. Story. I could be a advertisement for your book right now <laughs> absolutely that's a great that's a great shirt i love it yeah and i agree yeah awesome well thank you again for being on here today and thank you for thank all that you do. thank you so much 
Thanks for listening, Overcomer Nation. Make sure if you haven't already, give us a five-star rating. Make sure that you share this and subscribe so you can see all of our future content. That's right. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future show, go to overcomers-podcast.com. If you're interested in our franchise opportunities with Journey 333, then go to www.journeyfitness333.com. And finally, if you like what you heard today and you feel like you're somebody that needs a bit more coaching, go to travisbarnes.com. Yeah!